Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. The 2020 MIPS Manual is out now on Amazon, and it's a great resource for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're sharing our conversation with Dr. Adara Landry. She's the Assistant Program Director and Professor at Harvard Medical School, and she's been a mentor to many. She shares her experience and expertise with us, and we definitely learned a lot talking with her and think you will too. So let's get started. Hello, my name's Adara Landry. I'm a physician and I completed my medical training in 2011 at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And um, I remember when I first applied to medical school, I was just so nervous about the application process and how daunting it was. And there were so many essay questions about what inspired me to become a doctor. And I felt like I didn't really have a concrete story. I had no one in my family who paved the way for me. I didn't really have great mentors. And it was sort of the absence of support within the academic realm that really drove me to find a way and to find solutions and to just support myself. And so somehow I was able to get accepted into UCLA and I navigated myself through four years of medical school. And it was at the end of my fourth year of med school, I actually went to New York City to do a rotation at NYU in the Department of Emergency Medicine there. And I met another Black female physician by the name of Uche Blackstock, who really inspired me. And she looked at me and saw, I'm assuming, a a bit of herself in me and really took me under her wing and gave me so much support and so much advice and really encouraged me to think so much beyond what I can achieve with just an MD. And she said, you know, to me, you can do so much more than just clinical medicine. You can be outside of the bedside, advocating, leading, mentoring, supporting others. And there's so much potential in you. And she was just so inspiring to me. I, I never, I had never had that. I don't know how I was able to get through college. I went to UC Berkeley, medical school, and all the way to the point where I was about to enter residency without really ever feeling encouraged and that sense of belonging. 
And that really drove me forward. And I ended up going to NYU for residency in the emergency medicine. I was selected as a chief resident, which is a, a great honor for residents. And then I went to Brigham, which is one of the Harvard affiliated hospitals after that for a fellowship in ultrasound. And I simultaneously got a master's at the Harvard Grad School of Education in education with a focus on technology, innovation, and education. And I'm currently really a mentor. I mean, it's massed in three different levels. I mentor medical students as a society advisor for the Harvard Med School. I mentor residents as a assistant residency director for residents in our program. And then I'm also a fellowship director and I mentor my fellow. But all of this is sort of disguised, you know, these titles sort of disguise what I ultimately do, which is just mentor and support people and help them in their career. This is really important to me because it's one of those, this is what I did not have. And this is what I know others need. So why don't I just sort of give them the skill set that I wish someone had given to me? And that's really driven me throughout my career. I think over the last few years or so, I have focused a bit more on targeting underrepresented minorities in medicine, just because there are so few of us. And just to give you some numbers as far as what these actual quantitative pictures look like. So in 2019, the United States population was about 13% African-American and 18% Hispanic. But during that same academic year, the matriculation of Black and Hispanic medical students were only 7% and 6.5% respectively. So we're really not matching the demographic we treat. And we know that this affects patient care This leads to further health disparities. This has been brought up very recently in COVID and how it is, there's a huge polarity as far as it involving more minority demographics within the United States and low-income persons and how that's all sort of disguised to structural racism and within our healthcare system, within our government. And so a lot of this deals back to who are our treating providers, who who are our policymakers, All these things have really, really motivated me over the last few years. We love Dr. Blackstock. We had a chance to speak with her last year, and she is incredibly inspiring. And I have several questions to you regarding just mentorship and things that you have learned through that whole aspect of your career. More along the lines of like, what do you think that people are either learning from their engagement with you or perhaps questions that they don't ask themselves, thinking about what is possible on what their futures might hold. Can you share any sort of insights into maybe some, I don't know, interesting interactions that you've had with mentees of yours and just kind of tell us a little bit more about that? I would say a lot of us, if you if you kind of go back to when you were in like basic science in high school or maybe college and learning about potential versus kinetic energy, a lot of my mentees come to me with potential energy. They're just sitting at the top of the hill waiting for someone to push them and convert that energy to kinetic and to just move. And I think that waiting, that static, immobile, someone is going to help me, I think that actually delays us. And that's what I did. I really just waited and waited until someone came up to me and and said, oh, I know how to actually get you to move faster. I know how to convert your energy. And so I wish I had taken ownership of my career and really sought out folks who are doing what I wanted to do and really try to see what opportunities exist that would push my boundaries, that would make me feel challenged and expand my reach as far as my network. I didn't do all of that. I went through undergrad and I went to Berkeley, which was a, you know, a huge university. I came from a very small 
private religious high school with less than 400 people. And I went to Berkeley. And when I went to Berkeley, I was 16 years old. I moved out, you know, from Southern California to Northern California. And, and I was totally overwhelmed with the system. And I had not had a mentor in high school. So I didn't even understand the concept of someone being dedicated to my career and the development of my career outside of my parents, because that was just such a foreign idea to me. And no one had really even asked me what a mentor was, I, I think, until, or, or if I had a mentor. No one had, no one had even asked me if I had a mentor, I think, until when I was applying to medical school. And someone said, well, ask your mentor to write you a letter of recommendation. And I said, well, I don't have a mentor. I just had college professors who were teaching me, but I didn't see them as a mentor. There was no relationship there. And so I think that waiting part delayed. I mean, I ended up doing okay. I feel like I'm doing okay, but it, it, it was a much harder path and it took a lot longer. And I think I still would be even more successful now had I started to sort of see what my opportunities are earlier and really expand my network. Because I think when it comes to professional development, the biggest currency, the most richest currency is your, your network, the, the people who are with you and supporting you. I didn't really develop that until much later. So I always tell my mentees early on to engage in their own career, to not wait for someone else to move them along, because that can really delay things. And most of us don't feel like we are capable of taking that initiative. We feel like we don't know, we're not worthy, or we're just misguided. And so we stall a bit too long. And so I, I think I generally start the conversation with get involved with your own career and make moves yourself. You pointed out in numbers, the underrepresented minority populations in medicine. Do you think, or is it your experience that those individuals have a harder time finding someone in medicine to do that for them. Like you explained, Dr. Blackstock did kind of later in your academic and professional career. Do you see more of that? Obviously, you've taken that role on, or what tips would you give someone that is in that place that they're just kind of sitting there at the top of the hill waiting or kind of stalled out? I think our natural inclination is to find a mentor who looks like us. And the word looks could be from a physical standpoint or a background standpoint as far as the path that we've taken. We want that familiarity and it's a natural response and I, and I don't give anyone a hard time for that. In fact, I enjoy those relationships as well. It's just easier. It's easier. It's not necessarily better, but it is easier to have a conversation with someone who is from my hometown and they understand what it was like to grow up in Rialto, California. And so... I respect that because I have it myself. But I also have a lot of mentors who don't look like me and who come from very different backgrounds. And there's a lot to learn on both parts. Those relationships will challenge both parties to really understand, from my perspective, how do I learn from someone who has had a completely different path? And from them, from their perspective, how do I mentor someone who I, I really can't necessarily relate to because you know they might have grown up with one parent or they might not have understood how they could develop their career. There's just a lot of dissonance there. And so I think it's a great relationship for both people when there's definitely differences. So I encourage my mentees to not just rely on me. That's for sure. They have to seek out others. One thing that has been actually incredible for my career, and I wish I had done it earlier, is social media, is getting on social media for professional reasons. I was on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram 
years ago and, and I still have accounts, but more for personal reasons. You know, I was like taking pictures of my food and those sorts of like places I've traveled, but I never thought of it as how could I actually expand my career. And so I actually, you know, I interview a lot of medical students for residency positions. And I always say, you know, you should really get on Twitter and not for, you know, sharing of pictures on your vacation. Now that's fine as well, but really to see who are the thought leaders in your field, who are the ones who are really driving the conversation, who's writing about topics, who's being featured on podcasts, all those things. That's really helpful as far as mentorship because there's different levels of mentorship. You know, the proximity, the closeness of it can change. There's a mentor, for instance, who could just be sitting in the office next door to me. But then there's like this huge range. You know, I consider Michelle Obama a mentor of mine. I've never met her. I probably won't ever meet her, but I've read her books. I listen to her speeches. I read whatever she writes or whenever she's featured somewhere. And I feel like I still learn from her. It might not be a two-way relationship in the sense that she doesn't get much from me directly, but I do think that I can still gain a lot of advice from her and a lot from her storytelling of, of the lessons she's learned. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. 